Well, good morning, everyone. Would you uh, pray with me as we get started here this morning? Lord, we pray that your holy word would abide in us today. Lord, that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear clearly from you, you speaking through your word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we uh, enter the uh, second week studying one of the shortest books of the Bible, the question has to be answered here today. Why are we doing this? And why is this little letter, this one of the tiniest books in the Bible, even here to begin with, right? I mean, Romans makes a ton of sense to me, but Second John, it's barely 250 words long. I'm going to answer those questions, but first we're going to do so by a, a quick history lesson. So perhaps uh, many of you remember about 15, 20 years ago, the leading controversy in the evangelical church surrounded something called the emerging church movement. Uh, some of you may remember this. Some of you maybe weren't even born yet at the time. The, the emerging church was actually kind of hard to define. There was no clear central teaching or well-set-out set of theological beliefs. It was more of like a, a vibe, like, like a feeling, a conversation, as they called it. It was an attempt to engage with the massive cultural changes that were swirling around the turn of the millennium. And they were trying to push back, overall, they were trying to push back against what they perceived to be the sort of strict rigidity of Orthodox Christian faith. And most of these leaders and proponents were heavily influenced by postmodernism, and they sought to refashion Christianity into something new, up, updating evangelicalism for this brave new world that we found ourselves in. Now, much of this movement was focused around the belief that absolute truth and orthodoxy was simply an invention of Enlightenment rationalism. In other words, orthodoxy as we know it is something artificially restrictive. What we need instead, they argued, was something more free-form, more free-flowing, something that breaks down all these artificial barriers and boundaries between denominations and even other religions. Instead, we, so we should resist absolute truth claims and instead focus on, on spiritual experiences, internal subjective experiences. That is very worst... The emerging church completely disassembled historic Christian faith, leaving almost nothing behind except some sort of melting candles and hipster pastors and vague references to Jesus. And although this movement is long gone now, you may be thinking, why are we even talking about it anymore? We see those same relativistic seeds continuing to bear bitter fruit in the current trend of evangelicals, on the one hand, embracing the most extreme forms of critical theory, and on the other, completely deconstructing their faith. Now, these movements, they don't appear out of nowhere. 
Right? They have identifiable leaders and proponents, individuals with powerful platforms who use their influence to push their positions on other people, authors, pastors, speakers, folks with TikTok channels and YouTube channels and, and huge followings. That's the world that we live in now, a world of voices that are competing for your attention. A world of voices continually poking and prodding and pushing and challenging every single thing that you hold to be true. Not just from outside the church, but from within it now as well. That's the world that we live in today. This was what was happening 20 years ago during the, the, the chaos around the emerging church movement. That was the world 100 years ago during the, the great liberalism and fundamentalism debates and on and on and on, back down through time, all the way uh, to the early church, even to the Apostle John. And that's why we're studying Second John. Not just because it's cool to look at the random little letters of the Bible, but because this was John's world too. In fact, his situation was perhaps far more precarious than ours. They didn't even have a completed New Testament to hold on to that they could turn to. Right? They, they had no creeds, councils, confessions, catechisms. They were on the bleeding edge of Christendom. And as the Holy Spirit forcefully advanced his kingdom throughout the Mediterranean, all kinds of deceivers and false teachers and impostors fought to impose their vision on this fledgling faith. And John, most likely, almost certainly, the last remaining living apostle, right? he's desperate to ensure that the churches under his purview would be protected from such heretical beliefs. So look, please don't make the mistake of thinking that Second John is short because he has nothing to say. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Exactly. Look at verse 12. John says, though I have much to write to you. Look, much to share with you. However, he wants to come and speak with them face to face. Not just for the joy of, and the pleasure of fellowship, although I'm sure that was high on his agenda, but to impress upon them the urgency of the matter in person. The letter is short because the threats from false teachers are imminent. And John knows that this letter is going to get there faster than he can. It's like a general in war sending an urgent telegram uh, to the front line saying, the enemy is about to attack. I'll tell you more when I arrive, but in the meantime, batten down the hatches. Get prepared for battle. That's why John's letter is so short, because it's so urgent. That's why John's letter is in the canon, because the problem of false teachers is persistent. And finally, that's the heart of our message today. You need to resist false teachers in order to receive a full reward. Now, I've divided the remaining text this morning. Remember, Pastor Michael looked at the first half of 2 John last week. Today, we're going to look at the second half from verses 7 through 13. Just two main commands we're going to look at today. First, We'll examine verses 7 through 8, and the main command here is simply this. Watch yourself and receive a full reward. John says in verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. 
Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Now, as we've already discussed, the context for this letter is a world in which many deceivers have gone out into the world. But note, this was a very specific kind of heresy that John was countering. There are all kinds of crazy, false teachings out there in the world today. Someone sent me a video uh, a few weeks ago of this woman who's trying to argue on TikTok, planets aren't real. And I was like, okay, that, that's just ridiculous. I don't even need to waste time responding to that. But the kind of heresy that John is concerned about here is far more serious than some random fringe oddities. Look at verse 7. He says, These deceivers do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, in our current cultural context, where there's so much polarization and people will divide over just about anything, Theological arguments seem to just explode spontaneously on social media. This is really important for us to hear because the deceivers John targets, they weren't debating some minor side issue. They were teaching and proclaiming a lie that struck at the very heart of Christian faith and practice. The incarnation. If Jesus, the Messiah, did not come in the flesh then he did not die in the flesh either, which means, therefore, no substitutionary atonement, no penalty paid for sin, no forgiveness, no resurrection, no way for us to be adopted as sons and daughters of God, and thus no future, no hope. Deny the incarnation, and you and I are all still stuck in our sin, spiritually dead, blinded by the God of this world. The incarnation is not a minor, secondary issue, up for debate. One of the very first verses in John's gospel emphasizes this exact point. John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John adds, And we have seen his glory. We've seen it. We've touched it. We've experienced it. We walked with him. But these deceivers, whoever they were, they denied this. And it was right then to label them as anti-Christ, opposed to the Messiah. Little miniature representatives of the final eschatological antichrist who will one day threaten all believers at the end of the age. And in this context, John says, watch yourselves, be careful, look out, danger ahead. Why? John says, he, he says, look, so that you may not lose what we have worked for. What are they losing? What did they work for? If you look back at, John, uh, uh, at verse 4, John says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. John and his disciples have been working among the early church to ensure that they walked in the truth, as Pastor Michael said last week. And the news that some of them were continuing to walk in that truth brought great joy for John. Walking in truth, it, it's not something uh, that, walking in truth is not just what's best for us. It's the only true source of joy that we have in this world. 
And not just joy for us, but joy for those around us as well. Kids, when you walk in the truth, that brings your parents great, deep joy. To see that spiritual investment bearing fruit, to see that spiritual baton pass safely down to the next generation, it is a beautiful gift. And so John says, watch out that you don't drop it. Don't lose focus. Don't let the false teachers distract you. But instead, work for your full reward. Now, what is that reward? Well, it's not our salvation because that's not something that you work for or earn or get as a, as a gift for all your hard efforts. But it is related to our salvation. Throughout the New Testament, there are numerous references to the rewards that faithful followers of Jesus will receive. Some of which we experience right here and now, right? Like the internal sensations of joy and peace and and. peace. And, and, and love and freedom and grace, as well as all the relational experiences of, uh, of truth and fellowship with other believers, even the material blessings that we experience from God and answered prayers. But most of the rewards are stored up for us in heaven. Now kids, how many of you are, are responsible for doing chores at home? Anyone? Okay, yeah. <laughs> and some adults too, great. So how many of you have done some death-defying, earth-shattering, life-changing chore like, I don't know, putting away your clean laundry and you come all excited to your parent and you're like, hey, what do I get for doing this? And you hear, well, your reward son is a job well done. <laughs> and you're like, oh my gosh. You've heard that before, right? You've all heard that. Or, or, well, all this hard work, it builds character. That's your true reward. It's like, okay, thanks, Dad. But character is not going to buy me new Nikes or a new video game or I can't hang it up on my wall. I've got all the character I want. It's like when someone at my old job, they promise to bring in bacon for us at lunch and we're so excited and then they bring it over to us. And it was this worst kind of vegetarian counterfeit. And I'm like, what kind of evil is this? And she was like, yeah, but it's so much healthier for you. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay, don't worry, I was very Christian in my response. Whatever I may have been thinking or feeling inside. Um... But the point is, how often do we think of our rewards? He's talking about rewards. How often do we think of our true reward as Christians in just this same kind of light? As if God is like that one family on Halloween who only hands out bottles of water because after all, the kids already have far too much candy. And it's like, yes, that's true. But gosh, in that moment, that's not what I want. I want more candy. Like we know our true reward is technically what's best for us, but honestly, it's just not that appealing or exciting. And yet Jesus repeatedly points his followers to the rewards waiting for them in heaven. 
repeatedly encourages the faithful that enduring suffering and challenges and living out their faith in obedience to him will result in rewards. Rewards that will far exceed even the most amazing stuff you can imagine here on earth. Rewards you won't grow weary or tired of. Rewards that won't wear out or go out of style after a few months. Rewards that can't be stolen. They don't need to be hidden safely away. Rewards that you can enjoy without worrying about, am I bragging too much about this? Are other people going to get jealous of it? Rewards that will bring true, lasting joy and can be savored fully and completely in a new creation free from the corrupting influences of sin. And that's on top of the inestimable value of salvation, forgiveness of sin, freedom in Christ, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is no earthly example that can even come close to capturing the enormity of God's abundant generosity and astonishing blessings stored up for us in eternity. Medals, trophies, cash, candy, none of it compares This world in all its finery is still just a pale, sin-sullied shadow of the glories awaiting us in eternity. So John says, watch yourselves. Don't throw all that, that away. Press on to the end. So how do we do that? Well, obviously there are cults that deny the incarnation and real death and resurrection of Christ, and we should stay far away from them. But perhaps more subtle and dangerous are the temptations among Christians to seek some kind of spiritual higher life that's beyond the annoying physical limitations of our broken, aging bodies and our normal, mundane existence. A faith that so emphasizes right belief and intense spiritual fervor that our material bodies are then somehow ignored or even look down upon, something we need to shed or get rid of. Salvation, in this case, is then seen as an opportunity to escape this world, ignoring the fact that resurrection promises resurrection bodies, not disembodied spirits. But God never calls us out of the humdrum stuff of daily life. He calls us to exalt him and to serve him and to follow him right in the middle of the normal moments and everyday experiences of this world. God created material, physical beings in a material, physical world, not to rescue us out of it, but to redeem us from slavery to sin and restore this broken masterpiece to full intended glory. So press on to the end, not seeking escape from this world, but clinging tightly to Jesus in the middle of it, encouraged by the rewards that he will bring, uh, that he brings now, and with hope for the the rewards we'll experience in the new heavens and the new earth. So the first command then is to watch yourselves and to receive a full reward. But the second command is don't play host to false teachers. Look at verses 9 through 11. John says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. 
If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now John brings out this contrast very clearly in verse 9. First he says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. However, whoever abides in Christ in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now the Apostle John is very fond of this concept of abiding, right? It's one of the more well-known passages in John 15. Abide in me and I will abide in you. And Why do we do this? John says that, your, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's not for God's blessing that we abide in him. It's for ours. It's not a duty we undertake to keep the boss happy. It's a necessity that we embrace for our own well-being. Now to abide, or in some translation it says to remain, means something like stay a while, kick off your shoes, put up your feet, settle in, make yourself at home. It's the difference between living out of a suitcase and, and unpacking everything and putting it all away in the closet. So first, the person who does not abide in Christ, that person, in fact, who goes on ahead, does not have God. Now, if any of you have kids, you know what it's like to try and lead people who are constantly rushing ahead, even when they have no idea where it's going, right? (laughs) It's usually in the places where they're most likely to get completely lost in a giant crowd of people. But adults are just as prone to this exact same thing. About 20 years ago, I was helping at a Young Life camp in a pretty remote area uh, of Canada, just north of Vancouver. And as we were hiking one day, we were coming down the trail and someone came up to us and said, hey, watch out, there is a bear up ahead on the trail. So what do you do when someone tells you that? You're like... You run, right? Or, or at the very least, you would stay where you are. What did I do? <laughs> I decided I'm 20-something. I'm invincible. There's a bear. I need to get a photo. So I'm like, I'm going to run on ahead. So I didn't take this photo, by the way. <laughs> Just give full credit, but uh, where it's due. So I race on ahead towards this bear. And we get to this tiny little picnic uh, hut and we're looking around everywhere. Where's the bear? Where's the bear? And then we see the bear. And it's like maybe 20 yards away and near a tree. And I'm thinking, but it's okay because it's in like brush up to its neck. So we're fine. <laughs> I'm 20. I have no idea. So um, then something spooks the bear and it bolts and it plows through that brush <laughs> Like an, an NFL line, uh, you know, running back plowing through a peewee football team. I mean, just like bowling it all over. Now, thankfully, he headed in the opposite direction. But as we stood there and watched that bear bolt, we had this sinking feeling. If he had come towards us, like I wouldn't be presenting this sermon today. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Now, we might, think, might not think of theological innovation as being quite this life-threatening. But from John's perspective, it really and truly is. When we race ahead in the faith, 
reinventing, changing the gospel to accommodate new ideas and concepts, trying to conform to the current cultural moment. It's every bit and as dangerous and foolhardy as me running out ahead trying to get a photo of that bear. And we see this all around us. Right? Churches and denominations, not just performing gay weddings, but ordaining gay ministers as well. In fact, it's been going on for so long now, we're not even that shocked by it anymore. And the obvious next pressure point, we'll be doing the same for trans people as well in the churches. Running way on ahead of orthodox faith and practice in a disastrously misguided attempt to appease the surrounding culture. This is why John goes on to say in verse 10, if anyone, uh, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, if you've been part of our church for any amount of time, you know how important hospitality is to our church here. It's part of our culture, part of who we are. It's a biblical way for us to share the gospel with those around us, an easy way for us to engage with our our friends, our neighbors, our communities. And we do this not because we think it's a clever church growth strategy, but because it's biblical. It's a pattern we see laid out for us repeatedly in the New Testament. So how can the Apostle John be so adamant about not showing hospitality to someone? Well, first, welcoming someone into your home was a little bit different back then than it is today. To host someone then was to tacitly affirm and give your full approval to them. You were, in effect, vouching for this person who would otherwise be a complete stranger in the community. Remember, villages and towns were tiny, tight-knit communities. Everyone knew everyone and what was going on around them. Totally different from our experience in the western suburbs where you're lucky if you even know your neighbor's name. No one cares who, who, who you bring into your home here today. But it would have been completely different in a tight-knit village of that time. But second, he's not talking about all non-Christians here. He's not saying, don't receive anyone who is not a Christian into your home. In fact, one of the primary ways Christians shared their faith was through hospitality evangelism. The restriction here is placed specifically on false teachers looking for an opportunity to spread their lies. Now third, remember, John, as Pastor Michael noted last week, almost certainly this letter is written to a church, not to an individual, but to a church. So his restriction is primarily, in this case, on churches opening their doors and hosting false teachers, thereby giving a platform and an audience to their message, which was, as we've already noted, opposed to the gospel. Now, obviously, we wouldn't do that today here at our church, give space in our service for a a false teacher, although many others have. And in an age that tends to stress unity and peace over truth, this will continue to be a threat to the church. But I think there's a more personal threat that comes a little closer to home for most of us. 
Because while it's unlikely that any of us would knowingly and willingly invite a false teacher into our homes in order to give them a platform or into our church here to give them a platform, we nevertheless often give space for false beliefs and lies in our own hearts and minds. Lies about myself, about God, about my faith, about my salvation, Lies about my true identity. Lies about my value and my worth. Things like I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough or strong enough. I'm not as good as this person over here. God can never forgive me for whatever. Or other people won't ever be able to forgive me for whatever. I'm not worthy. I'm not lovely. I'm not trying hard enough. I'm lazy. I'm stupid. I'm weak. All of these are lies from the devil that threaten to choke out our faith. They contradict the message and teaching of Christ. They are opposed to the gospel. They should be ignored, banned, rejected, cast out. And instead, what do we do? We invite them in. We offer them a cup of coffee. We fluff up the pillows on our couch. We're like, hey, come in, kick up your your feet. Make yourself at home. We encourage these lies to abide in us rather than us choosing to abide in the truth. We greet them, these lies, like an old familiar friend because these lies come around so frequently. We know them. We've heard them before. Now deep down we know they're going to do nothing but trash the house And leave us in a worse mess than when they arrived. And yet we open the door and let them in anyway. And the only real solution, as John tells us here, is to get a better lock on that door. Right? Don't receive such thoughts. Don't even greet them. The moment they come knocking, you turn off the light, you pull down the blinds, there's nobody home. Now, obviously, in cases of severe trauma or suffering, this is far more complicated. It takes a lot of time and counseling and years of prayer. Many of us will spend our whole lives fighting battles against these lies. But fight we must. Look again at the second half of verse 9. John says, Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Abiding in the teaching of Christ means setting up shop with Jesus. Instead, choosing every day when you wake up to walk with Jesus, however slow and stumbling and faltering those steps may be. It's praying for help, saying, Lord, I don't know how I can do this without you today. These thoughts, they keep pressing in on me. I don't want them. I know they're lies. I need your help to resist them. I know they're false. I need your spirit to give me strength to stand up against them and to believe the truth instead. It's claiming verses for yourself like John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Or Romans 8, 1, right? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Abiding in Christ, or 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. 
clinging tightly to these and dozens of other verses, speaking truth to yourself. This is how you can abide in Christ and resist the lies of the Antichrist. So don't play host to false teachers and deceivers, whether literally in your homes or here in our churches or spiritually in your own hearts and minds. And one final thought here by way of conclusion. In times of struggle, difficulty, and suffering, and persecution, it can be tempting to think, I'm all alone. Right? Nobody, nobody sees me, nobody cares, nobody else gets just how serious this is. But look again at the last verses of, of 2 John. He says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is John's way of saying, hang in there. To this church, he's saying, hang in there. I see you. I know exactly what threats are facing you. I am with you. In fact, we, your brothers and sisters in Christ at this other church, we are with you. That's what this fancy word, the children of your elect sister, that's what he means. Your sister church. You're not alone. Now, your sister church, we see you. We see what you're going through. We care for you. We're praying for you. You're, you are not alone. Your church is not alone. You're not the last ones left standing up against the world. There are others. And soon, John says, I will be there to comfort and encourage you in person. And isn't this exactly what Jesus does? He promises to never leave us nor forsake us, to be with us always to the end of the age. He strengthens and encourages us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus promises that soon he will be here to comfort us and to encourage us in person to judge all sin and evil, and to usher in his glorious kingdom once and for all. To which we say with the Apostle John, come, Lord Jesus, come. Would you pray with me? Lord, we stand in a world filled with voices crying out for our attention Voices and spirits attempting to tear apart our faith, to tear down the gospel, to reject the truth, to corrupt it. And Lord, in the face of that, I pray that you would help us to stand firm. Help us to abide in the teaching of Christ. Lord, help us to resist the lies of our great enemy. And through the power of your spirit, I pray that you would help us to stand firm to the end so that we might receive our full reward. In Jesus' name, amen.